almost 50%, 40-odd percent of the total carbon emissions of a building happen during the time of construction. And so the opportunity for us is definitely in creating better buildings, mostly from the existing buildings we have, and then growing the lettable area. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. What is the future of our cities? During the pandemic, places like London have seen an exodus of people who can work from anywhere. So what is the rebound going to look like? What is the future of office space? Is co-working going to continue? Your host, Ben Robinson, dives into these questions with guest Jolt Kohami, Global Head of Real Estate and Co-CEO of Pictet Alternative Advisors. They also discuss the future of retail and whether the pandemic plus Amazon has permanently closed a lot of our favorite shops and what's going to become of these spaces. They also talk about real estate. Is it going to become more environmentally friendly? Are they going to start investing more in technology? Jolt earned his MBA at INSEAD and he speaks nine languages. This is such an interesting conversation. And if you like the interviews that we have here on this show, then you will likely enjoy Pictet's podcast, Found in Conversation, where they interview leading experts on how we can improve the modern world. Recent guests include Malcolm Gladwell and Jared Diamond. And now on with our show. Jolt, thank you very much for joining the Structural Shifts podcast. This is quite a wide ranging topic. So what, what I wanted to do is jump in initially by talking about urbanization. So I read that according to the UN World Population Report, 70% of the world's population will live in cities by 2050. Is urbanization the megatrend that is underpinning the real estate sector? Thank you very much, first of all, for having me, Ben. And I, and I would say that urbanization is a positive trend that helps because when people move, they have new needs. They have new needs for location in terms of residential, but also in terms of meeting spaces um, that, that uh, today were certainly offices, um, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that later, how that may change. So I think it helps, but I wouldn't say it is the, the theme for real estate, because for real estate, really, I think the real thing that you need to take care of is what changes. Are, we as human beings change, and when we change, we have differing needs, and that means we need different type of buildings. We have to refocus real estate, not just to growth. We have to refocus ourselves to actually refurbishing what we already have. So you said that urbanization was one of the megatrends. So you said, as, you know, in, in, insofar as it pertains to what changes and what changes is, is really what matters. How much has the urbanization trend been paralyzed or maybe even put into reverse because of COVID? Because you, anecdotally, you hear lots of talk of people moving to the countryside or at least moving to the suburbs. How much of that is, is really playing out in reality? So I, I think one of the easy truisms of the pandemic has been that the pandemic has accelerated existing underlying trends. And, and it's not that, that these trends didn't exist. It's just that, that we've seen in five, six months what may have occurred over five to even 10 years. And one of those trends has been the move by a certain age group to the suburbs. And in my, in my previous life, when I was um, a partner at a global fund, we invested a lot into this trend already over the last decade in the U.S. This, you know, people who have children and can no longer afford to live downtown because they simply can't get the square meters, the square foots they require. They've been moving to the suburbs for a while. That has accelerated now. But it's not a new trend. It's something that we have seen. And there's a certain acceleration but I certainly don't believe that that in turn spells the death of, of major cities either. You know, one, one of the trends that we've seen over recent years is because of, you know, the strong spiller effects you get within cities is that the, sort of the larger cities have been growing or, or doing better than all other cities. So I feel like we've seen this trend towards mega cities. Do you think that stays the same? Or do you think one of the effects of COVID might be that people disperse a bit more, i.e. some of the sort of, you know, second tier, third tier cities might actually benefit? Again, I think that that trend 
certainly has been the case for a long time. That is correct. I also think that there has been a trend for what we're calling second tier cities. I think it's always important to say what we believe by that. To me, second tier cities would be Manchester um, in the UK or Gothenburg, for, for example, in Sweden or Lyon in, uh, in France, or, or think about Atlanta or Denver in the US. And these cities have been growing. For the last decade, they've really started to accelerate. And, and mega cities are very attractive. They give amazing opportunity to the people who move to them. But we do have an increasing affordability problem. And, and that affordability problem then gets into the problem of actually people getting access to the cities, how far they are from the downtown center. And there is a pain point where it is no longer worth it, so to say. Yeah. And that and that enhanced second tier cities, I believe, ha- have a real potential. Again, it's an accelerating, tr- it's a trend that has accelerated because of the pandemic. So the trade-off is really between you know, having enough square meters to, you know, and, and potentially having a garden, you know, and, and quality of life, if, if you like, versus not having a commute. Is that, and, and therefore, is, is that what's driving people into smaller cities because there isn't such a big trade-off in that respect? I think it's one of the trade-offs. I really like the, um, the idea that you look at the cost of accessing the downtown areas or wherever you may work or go for fun, and that cost is expressed both in terms of physical cost, how many dollars, pounds, sec it may cost, but also in time terms. And I think that, again, there comes a time when that pain barrier becomes quite big. But that's not the, that's not the only factor. Affordability is a very big factor. So you can get a certain quality of life that you can obtain in a second-tier city versus a, a first-tier city just by by the sheer affordability ratios, um, which normally is expressed in how many years of wages do you need in order to buy a home. Um, And that tends to be over double in the first tier cities than the second tier cities. And and then increasingly, I think the one other thing that has been accelerated by, by the pandemic is that we're thinking about healthcare metrics, which were not front and middle center of mind before. But now, you know, nobody ever used to look at what is the air quality I breathe on a daily basis. I think in the future, when people buy a home, I think that will start to become a natural metric that people will look at. And then where does a city like, so, we, so we're not actually in the same room, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, but we, we are both in the same city. And how do, where, where does a city like Geneva rank? Because, you know, it's on one level, it's always top of the sort of Mercer quality of life index. But on another level, it's not a big city, right? And in, in, in some ways, it's, it's not that economically dynamic. So what, what is, is Geneva sort of tier three, tier four city? I, I have to make a small precision there, Ben, actually. Um, Geneva does not make it to the top of the Mercer list. Actually, in the recent list, it's not even in the top three for Switzerland. And, you know, you normally tend to get Bern, Basel. Um, so you're getting actually... You could call them even more third-tier cities as the top in in terms of uh, quality of life index, which is which is interesting in itself, I guess. But 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 back to your question, maybe to address that, I think Geneva has very unique drivers. Having been in real estate twenty six years and and then moving to Geneva, what I realized is 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 how peculiar this city is because I think the the drivers here are unique and are somewhat related to the pandemic. I think there's a real inflow at the moment in terms of new population. And that's because people tend to look for security in uncertain times. And the pandemic has created uncertainty. And that has meant that globally, but in particular French and, and, and Brits, are, are looking to Geneva as a potential solution there to, to that uncertainty. And so I think that has created an inflow, which, which will push, I believe, um, home prices uh, you know, more, more than you would have seen w- without them coming to Geneva. The, the other factor, though, is that Geneva is a very, very high-cost location to live that is now truly affecting the, the livelihood of the middle class. And so I think that Geneva will face that problem, that it will start to become less attractive for the middle class if these trends continue, despite the high wages. But the high wages almost don't compensate for the, for the very high cost base. So I think Geneva has not been a net growth city recently. Um, I think it will grow on the margins on the high net worth side, but I'm not sure that it will 
grow as a healthy city in, in the mid-market if if there's not some kind of a, a rebalancing in relation to the to the to the cost base that uh, that you need to support with the wages here. London is London still a good investment from from a real estate point of view because I, I read that something like seven hundred thousand people left London in twenty twenty because of Brexit because of the pandemic and so on. Where where does London stand on? So I think that global cities, London and New York will go through a, a bit of a dip right now. And, and again, it goes back to the point I mentioned earlier. I think that the per kilometer cost, both in terms of time and money to reach downtown is very high in these cities. So when people have the opportunity to feel that they can work remotely, that they can secure themselves a better quality living, then, then London and New York have a slightly um, tougher go. As a, as, a very, as a very quick side remark, New York has an, another headwind, which is tax. So, in you know, if you move down to Florida and you you earn above a certain minimum threshold, you will keep almost twenty five percent more of your wages than if you stay in New York. So that's a pretty hard equation to to fight against at the moment at a certain income threshold. But so so back to London, I think that as you said, Brexit and the pandemic have left people, you know, looking at, at, at working from second home, sometimes even, even in France and, and beyond. I think that over time, London will regain its glory. Um, this may well take three, four, five years, but London has a unique set of futures. You know, the infrastructure, both physical, but actually even more the mental infrastructure in terms of some of the smartest people from the world being together in one city is not something that is repeatable elsewhere in Europe. And, and London still has the benefit of having English as its mother tongue as well. So I think London will come back, but I expect in, in, in relation to your question, I expect that to take a little bit of a while. And that means some interesting opportunities to buy if one has a long-term, mid to long-term horizon. And then where in Europe is benefiting because of Brexit? Or or which city is benefiting most? Because I I guess a few cities are sort of reaping a Brexit dividend. So so ever since the Brexit debate has started, I've I've seen and followed numerous studies and had numerous very interesting conversations, even with former chancellors of the exchequers in the UK about, about this theme, about what will happen with Brexit and who will benefit. I think that what, what I am seeing so far is that the, the actual move has been more muted than people would have thought. It has accelerated somewhat in the last three, four, five, six months. I would say that there, it's, it is interesting to observe that with all this preparation time up to Brexit, most people have decided not to make a big move in a big way. Um, it, I do see an acceleration of trend. The main benefactors are Amsterdam, definitely, because... English is a very strong second language where virtually anybody you will speak to the street will speak it because the infrastructure is very, very good. Schiphol has many more runways than Heathrow can, can ever dream of attaining and the infrastructure simply works. And, and you have a very educated population that is very welcoming and again speaks English. So I think overall Amsterdam is one of the main beneficiaries. Dublin is often cited. I always just feel that Dublin is not very big and it is the wrong way. And hence, the travel times, if you ever want to travel anywhere within Europe, is, is not great. Um, so Dublin has been a benefactor, in particular on the tech side. But I, I just don't see many companies saying, hey, I want to move my headquarters from, from London to Dublin. Frankfurt often cited. The problem with Frankfurt is that very few of the people who are the actual decision makers want to live in Frankfurt. And by the way, I think it's an image problem really for Frankfurt because I think the city has become better, more cosmopolitan. There's more um, leisure available around the river, but but it still has a a problem of how it is perceived and hence it's less so. And then the last and I think somewhat very surprising contender is Madrid. Nobody would have said three, four, five, six, seven years ago that Madrid would really be a contender. They have brought in almost, the metaphor is almost like New York to Miami. They have brought in very um, interesting tax 
for people who are willing to relocate to Madrid. So I think tax uh, is, is certainly a factor. Good weather, again, just as, as in Miami is a factor. But I think also, you know, it is a city that is very easily communicatable. You can get to anywhere in the city, given the very wide avenues within 14, 15, 16 minutes. And the local municipality is as business friendly as they come. And they simply make things happen. Interestingly, during the pandemic, they've been almost fully open for the last six months, whilst everywhere else, including in Spain, everywhere else, people are closed. But Madrid has just kept open, prioritizing business. It's a, we, can, we can debate the ethics yeah. of this, but I think that, that overall Madrid has shown a, a lot of interest. And, and what recently at the data point that I saw, which I thought was fascinating, was that Credit Suisse, uh, a completely non-Spanish bank has moved its European investment banking headquarters to Madrid. And that, that is a first. We've seen Santander make such pronouncements, moving their investment banking back from London to Madrid. But there you understand why, as it is a yeah. Spanish bank. But a Swiss bank putting its European investment banking HQ in Madrid is a first. And I believe not a lot. And somewhat conspicuous by its absence in that list you just gave is Berlin, because you know Berlin has always been tipped as a as a city that was about to boom, right? You know, it had yeah. all the right, supposedly all the right conditions, right? It had you know very young, sort of well educated workforce, relatively cheap housing costs. Why hasn't Berlin done better? Do you think? I think Berlin has done well. It's almost a, it's almost a victim of its own success because the uh, the legendary price advantage that it has has been chipped away at very substantially over the last few years, given its popularity. So uh, Berlin used to be famous in real estate for what we called pancake rents, because rents never grew there for over well over a decade. But since 2015, we've seen a skyrocketing of rents in, uh, in Berlin, which has actually taken away one of the key advantages that you've just mentioned. And, and now it goes back to quality of life. And Berlin has the opposite of Madrid. It has a very let's put it this way, I don't know how to put it, very unreformist uh, municipality that is very slow, that doesn't necessarily create the right environment in many ways, in, including, for example, now rent controls, which means that many people are no longer improving the flats as they know yeah. they can no longer get higher rents. And so that hasn't helped Berlin, but overall Berlin has done very well. And I think that when we talk about benefactors, it's always for different reasons. I think if, if if there's a tech company looking to relocate from London, that would likely look at Berlin as one of its absolute top picks um, because Berlin has been good on the tech side. But I think the tech companies are less in a need to move than potentially, for example, financial services firms as a result of Brexit. People are working more and more from home and they're much more comfortable sort of mixing going to work with working from home and that i guess opens up you know a much bigger remote workforce which you know i think we've talked about in the context of of cities but what does it mean for city center office space does the demand go down or does the demand or, or is it just a different type of office space that we'll seek that is the 40 trillion dollar question and you know Offices have been the largest asset class for real estate investors to date. And uh, I was recently on a panel for the major publication in private equity real estate, and we were six different peers who run different firms, and there was no agreement on the point. So I, I would, I, I'll give you my okay. thoughts, but I think it's very interesting. <laughs> this is a consensus view then. Okay, right. It's, it's very interesting to point out that I think that there's no full agreement. In my personal views as follows, I think that peak fear about people returning to offices was last June. Last June, everybody enjoyed their first three months. It was great weather throughout. Everybody said, wow, I can work from home. This is great. I'm, I'm sipping my macchiato in the, on, on the terrace. I'm, I'm getting a suntan. This is great. Following that, people started to realize certain things. Harvard Business School did a really good study on the fact that innovation that normally happens in the 10% of interactions that are spontaneous at work, where two people meet, at, for example, at the, at the uh, coffee area, and they discuss something that they were not planning. That's when innovation happens. Now, innovation through a Zoom or a, a Microsoft Teams is very difficult because you don't have by chance encounters or by chance points. So innovation will lack. That's one. I think two is collaboration. Um, just amongst 
uh, team and, and team spirit and so on. Three, I think, is which is the one I never hear anybody else talk about, but I believe in very strongly, is, is socialization being a requirement not only at home, but, but work socialization being a requirement. I think for our mental balance, if we're only in a private socialization environment and we don't get the work socialization, I think we lose our balance. Yeah. We're slightly different people in these two social environments, and I think we require both to be balanced. And then lastly, you can't educate young people. The young workforce that you're trying to bring up, again, is virtually impossible to bring forward um, through an online medium. So, so for these reasons, I believe we're going back to the office. I think we'll never go back in exactly the same way as we were pre-pandemic. You will very likely see an increase on the working from home trend. One of the agents just put an exact number to it. They thought that on average people worked from home 1.2 days a week and they, they thought it would increase to 2.3 days a week. I am not sure we can say it this specifically, but people will have days when they will work from home. And I think you'll you'll likely have Tuesday to Thursday, Tuesday to Friday, whatever time, or Monday to Thursday, when everybody agrees that we will be in the office because people need to meet up. I also think that one other trend that uh, people may not appreciate is that the average square meter per employee in 1989 in the US was 26 square meters. By 2018, that, that same metric was eight, sorry, nine square meters. We've gone from 26 to nine. So the I think that one of the things you will see as a result of the pandemic and increased focus on health is that we're going to increase the individual space we give people as basically as almost as a benefit. The benefit is you're coming back to the office, I'm giving you increased space. And so I think the all of these things, what they will likely lead to is pretty strong office demand in locations of desire where somebody a tech company like a google or a microsoft who wants their people to come back with happy happy and energetic uh, faces so that they can innovate I, I think those places will will work fine and that that actually is the downtown center that you asked I, where i worry more is a b location where there's a call center because there is no real raison d'etre. There's, there's, it's much harder to explain why a, uh, a B location really needs to be in office today. Okay, so, so potentially B locations suffer, and then the offices within, let's call them A locations, they probably need to be redesigned right, to allow people to have more space. Where do you stand on the co-working trend? What do you think happens to co-working post-pandemic? How we work will need to have more flexibility, as we said earlier, and that will lead to various innovative ways to how we think about space. One of my favorite examples now is that Accor Hotels in France is in big trouble, obviously, because there's there's virtually no tourist, tourism at the moment. But they have repurposed many of their hotel lobbies to act as working space. There's coffee available, there's space available. And so when people don't want to commute into a big town, there may be a hotel lobby nearby where they can work from. And I think that increasingly we will see companies thinking in a slightly more lateral way about what it really means to work from a space. And yep. so co-working has a role to play in that, obviously, because if you're a co-working operator and you have multiple locations and you can provide that flexibility, that will have a benefit. I actually foresee that there may well be companies above the co-working companies that provide that facility through various co-working operators. And so, so I think flexible space is here to stay. There were some really good thoughts around the co-working with some pretty crazy valuations at the time, but, yep. but flexibility in office space is, is only going to grow and the need is only going to grow. And, and real estate investors that were used to buying an office building with a 10-year lease and not thinking about the office for 10 years will no longer have that luxury. One of my key themes is that I believe that real estate is going towards the hospitality sector. It used to be only in the hospitality that you needed, you were measured every day. In most real estate products, you had a nice, comfortable life once you've secured that lease for a long term. I think that is changing. Our world is speeding up on us, which again is another acceleration, accelerating trend. And this has accelerated further. And for offices, the same will hold. And so hence, co-working operators 
have a role, but I, I think that the valuations that were discussed and, and that they will change the world is, is, is maybe slightly an overstatement. Yeah, so, so I mean, not wanting to be too specific, but somebody like WeWork, you would say, is a fundamentally sound business model, but just the valuation was, was you know, elevated. I think WeWork may be the best example of a non-sound business model, just because... <laughs> okay. Uh, now, I think, I think that initially it started as a very sound business model, and they were truly innovative in what they were trying to achieve. Unfortunately, then somewhere in between, also due to the push by SoftBank, they received so much money that, that the business model became unsound. And, and WeWork was well known to overpay by over 20% for every lease versus anybody else. So if you could get a WeWork lease in one of your buildings, you were very happy. But now they have these 10-year commitments that are 20% above the pre-pandemic market levels at which they need to try to make money. And so I think WeWork in particular does not have an easy um, setup. They will have to renegotiate with landlords a fair few leases and really try to rebalance into something a bit more sustainable. But again, co-working as, as, a, as a model is not unsustainable, perhaps not on the metrics that we were trying to And then just, sorry, just to um, go back to the, because you, you gave that excellent example of how sort of the square meterage per employee has, has gone down. How does that, you know, and, and you think that it will need to go back up, people will need more space. How do you square that with the, with the co-working model? Because isn't this, doesn't the economics stack up because you're doing exactly the opposite, which is you're taking a long lease and you're carving it up into, and you're fitting many more kind of, Subtenants into that same space? Not quite. So, the, so the, the the real the real nuance in the co-working model is that the assumption that most people are not experts in real estate. But that's I could put it as simple as that. And so, if, if a company does not, you know, a company has, for example, one person who's responsible for the for the real estate lease and so on, then that person may not do. The, the best planning for the company. And so the, the real benefit for a company is I will pay more per person and per square meter for, for space in a co-working space than I pay in a normal office building. But if, when I need that flexibility that I need to grow further, I need to reduce, I am, I am not stuck. And, I, and when I need the flexibility of more meeting rooms, less meeting rooms, I'm not stuck. That's the real offer. And so it's the, the, the per square meter doesn't translate into pushing people more closely or not more closely in a way in, in the co-working space. That's, that's not the real game. The real game is having real estate experts provide you with the flexibility that you may not be able to achieve yourself. Got it. So it's like, it's like a premium for optionality. Yeah. Okay, got it. Like and, then, and then I wanted to ask you also about the retail market because... Again, you know, this is this is a, a trend that's been accelerated because of the pandemic. E-commerce has just, you know, taken off. I mean, we've 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 moved in months what what people projected we would move in in years. And what does that mean for for retail spaces? What does it mean for for distribution centers? You know, what, how does that mix change within within cities? So that that will be probably the most noticeable change for all the listeners as they walk on their own high street um, and, and shopping centers. And I think that, as, as again, apologies for reiterating, but it is, th this trend has been here for the last three, four years, unabated. But we have done, as, as, as you said, in five, six months, what would probably have happened in seven, eight years. And what we're seeing is a twofold. On the retail, traditional retail space, there will need to be a repurposing. Now that repurposing, in my mind, is actually very interesting. I think what will happen is, on, in particular on high streets, what we'll see is a repurposing towards everything health related. The pandemic has made us more conscious about our own health. So you're gonna see more clinics of all sorts, but you will also see more soul cycle or boxing or you name it. So you will see people taking care of their health in a much more active way, being the growth sector. And you will see retail gradually disappearing. It's, it's incredibly acute and apparent in the UK. 20% of all the stores on Oxford Street are not supposed to open up after the pandemic. We've never had a statistic like that. Oxford Street is the premier street in the UK. So 
that that really shows the the level of the problem. Um, and then I think that the real issue that we have for for physical retail is that we have too much space. The space will need to be changed. And the 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 issue is is that the capital value used to be much higher because the retailers used to pay much higher rent than the next user will pay. So I think that this will unfortunately remain a falling knife or you know a yeah. point that needs to bottom out where where the capital value works for the next use we will be inventive and then the one last thing that will happen in the UK is that you will see the non central part of high streets being converted into residential because we continue to have a residential shortage in the UK so ground floor lower ground floor all all of these work and so most councils smarter councils will designate a key area that they want to keep is a high street, which should be a very short area, and then let the rest become residential. That will also be another trend. Conversely, if I if I may, yeah. just the, the the converse point is for every billion dollars of retail that goes online, you need about one point two five million square feet of fulfillment space, last mile logistics, basically. So, and this is something that we're in 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 our own fund. We're investing heavily into last mile across London. Um, it's a strategy that I've liked for for many years, but again, it has accelerated now because that you know somehow those packages that miraculously arrive on everybody's doorstep several times a day they need to be fulfilled from somewhere. And the last the last mile logistics space really competes with light industrial space, but that active those activities have not disappeared. And the supply of this space keeps diminishing because as we build new residential towers, anything else, there's less and less of this space and there's more and more need. So you have these two very different effects where last mile is becoming very, very valuable. And these are these are sheds that are not very beautiful sometimes, you know, near the M25, for example, in London, whilst whilst these are becoming ever more valuable. Uh, beautiful shops sometimes in very beautiful locations are losing value. But unfortunately, it's the reality of how we're living now and what are the underlying needs. And so it sounds like, you know, the big, I think you alluded to this at the start when you said, you know, the real opportunity in, in real estate is, you know, is capitalizing on what's changing. And so it sounds like area to play here is in in sort of changing the purpose of buildings, right? So, you know, hotels to affordable housing, you know, offices to to warehouses and so, and so on, right? Re, you know, retail space to to housing and so on. Is it? Would you say that's that's fair? I think that the the first point I would make is that the, where I definitely believe that there's a very large opportunity is repurposing, refurbishing buildings. I should say, yeah, refurbishing. Um, you know, seventy six percent of all European buildings are, are over twenty years old. So yeah, the, the statistic would be very different in a Southeast Asian developing country. But we essentially we have the buildings we need. The environmental footprint difference of demolishing that building and building something new up that is beautiful and and has all the relevant energy certificates that that make it sound like it's very energy efficient. Uh, that the cost of doing that ener- the energy cost, the environmental cost, is very big. Almost 50%, 40-odd percent of the total carbon emissions of a building happen during the time of construction. And so the opportunity for us is definitely in creating better buildings, mostly from the existing buildings we have, and then growing the lettable area, for example, adding a floor or you know increasing the lettable area somehow. The opportunities that you mentioned are great, but they're slightly harder because change of use always incurs an even higher capex, capital expenditure. So there are times when it works and and it's very exciting when it does. Um, I I, I love doing those type of transactions when it's possible, but, but one must understand that when you change from a hotel to an affordable housing or you name it, then you've got to knock two rooms together. That has a real cost. So the repurposing cost whilst very exciting, is often quite expensive. So either you need low capital values or you sometimes what you do is you take an old office building and you create something new, a new office building that is a building of desire because it, the floor layouts are different, the air quality is different and so on and so on. But it may still have the same use. So, you know, you just mentioned the carbon footprint that comes from, from real estate. 
I think I've read something like 40% of all carbon emissions come from, from real estate. So, you know, reducing the footprint of real estate will be critical to reducing emissions overall. Where, where is the pressure coming from to do so? Is it, is it sort of top-down because, you know, the UN's decided that the sustainable cities need to be one of our development goals, or is it bottom-up from consumers? Where's the pressure coming from to kind of make housing more sustainable or, or real estate more sustainable? I'll, I'll answer your question with perhaps just one remark, which is that I, I've always admired this, that you know, now you know this statistic and it's starting to come out that real estate is 40% of all carbon emissions, over half of all cement, over half of all basic materials we use. But nobody's mentioned real estate. Whenever the the we've had the climate debate, it's always been about aviation, cars, and so on. And I think eating meat. Well, yeah, 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 exactly. And so real estate got away so almost scotch free, which is very interesting to me because I think people have come to the conclusion earlier that we need to live and work somewhere. So it's it's it is what it is. I think that what's the the big change now is is that the urgency of improving the carbon footprint of real estate is probably the only positive outcome I see from this pandemic, more or less, in real estate, because it's suddenly been massively accelerated. Our our views on how important the environment is to us, and therefore the role that real estate plays in that, I think, is is being again accelerated by the pandemic. And, probably the only real big positive I can, I can, I can draw from, uh, from this otherwise pretty, pretty dreadful time. And, and, and you asked where the pressure comes from. I think it comes from two places. I think that now most firms, um, if, you look at, if you look at commercial buildings, most firms are looking into how can I look better from an environmental standpoint to my clients and to my investors, my shareholders. One of the easiest ways to achieve that is let me change the environmental footprint of my headquarters, of my production facility, you name it. And so I think that's uh, that's a very big driver. Um, in the residential sector, it's, it's obviously people taking a harder look at the, at, you know, the quality of the air they're breathing. Do they have a terrace or not? Much more important in today's uh, post-COVID time. So, so I think that's driven by people. And then, and then the other side is that institutions, uh, real estate investors, and especially, you know, we, we tend to do uh, value-add transactions where we create then an asset that will be sold to a pension plan or an insurance company that will likely hold it forever. And so these end investors who are holding the assets, plant all this for 30, 40, 50 years, they want to be able to say on their annual report how they're contributing to the improvement of the environment. So they want the ESG to be left, right, middle in, in the transactions they knew now. And so for the first time, and I've been I've been saying for the last three, four years, there is going to be a premium for environmentally friendly buildings. Um, and I think it's now evident that that is the case, but that hasn't been the case up until a few months ago. And so that's the pressure. And do you think these things are now a constant? You see, we've got a combination of like, we're going through a pandemic People have become very sensitive to environmental factors, health factors, at the same time as interest rates are very low. Do you think if the circumstances change, i.e. interest rates go up, you know, that the, the economy changes, that will, the, there'll still be this drive to sort of improving buildings? Because, because if yields go down, will people still be prepared to set aside the money it takes to make businesses, your buildings, more environmentally friendly? Um, the short answer is yes. I, I, I believe this is a long-term um, trend. And... I think it's more, more that it will become a bit like hygiene. It will start to become a basic must, yeah. and, and, and it will turn around, and essentially you will be shamed if you have a non-environmentally friendly building to the point where you lack liquidity. And people will want to avoid that, and that's why they'll do it. So it'll, it'll just become, just as much as we always get more regulation or more taxes, this will become another important thing to do for business at the moment it's it's been mainly investors who are passionate about this who've done it. I think it will just become a necessity. And do you think that we can reduce the sort of the net emissions from big cities? I.e., because you're saying that in you know in sort of well-established maybe Western cities, we're just refurbishing buildings, and so we're not adding that many new buildings. But what about cities that are growing very fast, where there's you know a large influx of new people? Presumably in those cities where you're having to erect new buildings, how do you do that and still lower carbon emissions? The, and, and just the one small precision is, is that 
I believe that we refurbish buildings up until their useful life. We do have to build new buildings. There's no, there's, there's, there's no escaping that fact. But we shouldn't demolish buildings that still have a strong useful life. In what what is the location. useful economic life of a of a building? I, I would say it can vary anywhere from thirty to two hundred years. The you know the the opportunity in on on the on the environmental side for real estate is tremendous. And the reason it's tremendous is because we've never really paid sufficient attention to it. So if you look, uh, again, the UK is a great example in, in what I, I love is the, the windows that are, that are single windows. You know, we don't have in the UK the, the, the double windows, which means that the amount of insulation, the amount of heat that escapes in a residential home is incredible. If you even take old buildings and you just do a few things, if you if you install environmentally friendly HVAC heating and ventilation system, that can very often lead to in excess of twenty percent savings. What do you then, mean by what do you mean by ventilation system? So in that in that respect. So he, heating and ventilation systems at the moment, you know, many, many buildings are still heated with gas, gas boilers, gas uh, engines and so on. The, the minute you change that to electric heating sources, and obviously this also implies that we get more en- energy sources that are renewable, of course, that, that goes without saying, but you make a very, very significant contribution to lowering the CO2 emissions. So the HVAC systems, as we call them, are heating and cooling systems at the same time. Okay. Okay. Um, so I think so. So that that is a massive, massive contribution opportunity. If you insulate buildings better and you create double or triple glazed windows, you know those savings are also in the low double digit percentages in terms of what you can spare. And then lastly, one thing that we've hardly done, and um, uh, Australia does a lot of this, and uh, because they just brought in certain tax incentives to do so. And now almost half of all Australian households have solar panels and generate almost half of their electricity within their homes. Obviously, the sun shines a bit more in Australia than elsewhere, but but there is a tremendous opportunity in on-site uh, electricity generation, or uh, which, which again, we haven't done. So if we do a combination of all of these, we can very, very, very significantly reduce the carbon footprints that we have today. Um, and so, so I think it's it's not really, I think the trade-off does not have to be, as maybe is often cited, on less square foot in order to save the planet. The trade-off is whenever we have a decision on how we renew a building, how we renew, renew an HVAC system, how we create a new wall, if we take the right decision, we put in the right insulation, we put in the right um, type of HVAC systems, we will achieve the goal of very significantly taking down carbon emissions without decreasing the floor plates. And I wanted to come back to something that you mentioned earlier on, which is around the the sort of demographic composition of cities. Because I think you, you, you sort of talked about this when we were talking about Geneva, which is a successful city, if, if not well-managed, becomes quite bifurcated, right? Because because you know prices go up, this is you know middle class people I guess start to you know start to move to to the suburbs or to or to other cities. This you know the government normally always looks after a certain proportion of housing through affordable housing, and as you said, there's a kind of middling out right of, of cities. How do you stop that from hap- happening? How do you make cities desirable to live in and affordable to live in at the same time? Th- that may come to that may be one of the first questions that come to my limitations because I'm not an urban planner. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I am merely a real estate investor, but uh, I think so. I think it's it's a tough call. Uh, the the way the attempts that real estate investors have have done have been various tries at innovative micro living, you know, uh, multiple use of spaces. A space becomes an office during the day, a sleeping studio at night, and so on. So there's been in order to allow young people on lower salaries to still stay in very central locations. Um, so those those are the kind of things that as real estate investors we've done. I think that sometimes my feeling is that, you know, for urban planners don't have an easy job in, in achieving that, that lofty goal of creating that balance. And I think that sometimes the harsh market economics makes it happen. And New York right now is an interesting example because I think the affordability 
has gone to relative extremes in New York. But right now, New York house prices are down very, very significantly. You know, yeah. you can you can pick up an apartment at 20, 30 percent less than you could a bit, you know, about 18 months ago. And and so that harsh reality may then help some of the rebalancing that, that you referred to. So it, it, it may happen over time naturally. The other sort of trend is to turn more of city centers into green spaces. But again, that's a difficult thing to, to marry with, you know, in, in increasing density, making urban centers affordable to live in and so on. So again, is, it, is, that, is there a driver to that? Is it, is it again sustainable and a long-term driver, do you think? I think that if you're trying to create a location where you want people to desire to live and work, then some green areas are very helpful. Certainly what I've felt is, is, you know, one of the key things that we look at, we have, we have 20 different things we look at from an ESG perspective at any building that we're looking to buy. And, and one of them is biodiversity. So we do try to think about how can we create some kind of a livable environment, but not just for us, but, but, but something a bit more than us throughout a building. And, and of course, rooftops are one idea, yep. which is being extremely, you know, more and more exploited. You can see vertical gardens now, which I think are very interesting, amazingly more efficient. And by the way, great for the environment that people can walk by and buy produce that is made there and not having to do all the shipment that happens to supermarkets. So I, I really like the idea of vertical gardens. And then most recently, one thing we did, which I which I learned a lot that we're, we're doing actually, and, and but I learned a lot through the process is putting beehives on top of uh, buildings. And it turns out that bees that live in cities actually are much healthier than bees that live in, in the countryside. And that's very counterintuitive at first. But the reason for it is because bees that live in the countryside tend to be exposed to a lot of the pesticides that is used in agriculture. Bees that actually live in the cities don't have that particular issue, which normally makes them much healthier bees. And you'll be very surprised to hear this, but they actually take bees from cities to the countryside. It's, a, it's one of those reverse migrations that actually happens, right. not just with people, but happens with bees as well. And so one of the things we, we're putting on, on, on one of our office rooftops, actually, beehives, because it's, it's something that we believe actually adds to the biodiversity of, of within a five kilometer radius, by the way, um, on, on where we are. It sounds like a lot of the answer to, to sort of squaring the circle here, you know, doing all the things we want to do um, within all the constraints we face, you know, meeting ESG targets, moving more people to cities, reducing carbon emissions, all these things that I would say historically trade-offs. The answer to, to doing them all at the same time without those trade-offs is probably technology. And so I wanted to start by asking you how you define a smart city, because that seems to be very much the buzzword, right? I wouldn't even try to define it. I think Google tried to build a smart city in Canada, and that hasn't gone too well for them. You know, they've, uh, <laughs> they've had yeah. to abandon, abandon midway. So I think we have to be very careful with this point. Um, Especially post-pandemic, I think there are genuine concerns around smart city, meaning that I am being observed and monitored at all times. So the, the solution, you know, what we would like to get to is, is a city where, where our lives are made easier, where our energy uh, consumption and our commute are made easier and more efficient through you know, technology but at the same time, we don't feel monitored. That's not an easy midway, I believe, yeah. to find. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a, it's a delicate balance. Just talk to us about some of the benefits of the Internet of Things. You know, where will we see those benefits? Because you know, one of the examples that people always use is you know that you can have you wouldn't have people driving around the city all day because they'd know where the free parking spaces were. But you know. That, that, that's sort of you know a, a one example you tend to yeah. hear, but they're probably you know probably ones that are much more interesting and have much more sort of profound impact on on our urban lives. Sure, I think that on the on the transportation, I always think it's interesting that many people don't talk about the most the easiest one. I used to live in Singapore for a while, and you know in Singapore for over twenty years they've had an intelligent system. You simply pay more for the usage of the highway when there's more people using the highway. 
Yeah. How simple is that? But it works wonders. You never get the traffic jams that you get everywhere else because there will be some price conscious people who will simply say, mm, I don't want to spend that much money on it. I'll, I'll go in the during the, the low tide. So so the, I always find it interesting that, that that example is not yet necessarily cited as often and that it hasn't been copied more often. In terms of buildings, the a, a few thoughts. One of the things that we do really badly is that all our in all our buildings, the amount of times that we use energy, heating, or even water when nobody is near is crazy. Yeah. So so having sensors ensure we've just bought an office building to give you an example. It's fascinating. We did a study on the energy usage. The building uses more energy at nighttime where there's not a single person inside than it does during daytime. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And and I am sure it's not the only building that does that yeah. um, throughout the world. Why is that though? That it uses energy more energy at night? Did did you come to the root cause? It's 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 a variety of reasons. I think the the night guard is turning up the heating, just because <laughs> simply he li- he likes the he likes it hot. And of course, it's a bit colder at nighttime. But if all the heating was turned off and we only heated the night guard particular area, and returned on at six a.m., you would have tremendous savings. So, you know, the water taps, the amount of times water taps are left on, not monitored, we're not aware, or there's leaks in pipes and we're not aware. You know, the 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 wastage in water, the the I believe the statistic is that uh, I, I think it was for London, the London water network loses close to 20% of all water before it ever gets to consumer. So again, if we had sensors monitoring where that water loss leakage is. If you think about water as a as not an abundant resource, it would be an incredible saving. Yeah. So I think have, having these sensors, and where by the way, people also don't feel necessarily monitored because they relate to the consumption of of, of a good, as opposed to necessarily monitoring us, would be would be a very very strong and big advancement. Then think also about, it, for example, if if you have an air conditioning system that if it automatically adjusted if you open your windows. You know, yeah. th- these kind of things, because at the moment, nothing that's the Internet of Things, but nothing is connected. And if we connect things, the amount of savings we can handle will be uh, will be tremendous. So, so certainly, certainly believe that these sensors will become ever more affordable, ever more ubiquitous, and they will help us become smarter. But we're one step away removed from this. This is the dreaming part. What I find is that where we really are is that 95% of the people, maybe it's even 99, need the first step, which is actually to measure what they're consuming. Yeah, People simply don't know yet. And so when we, again, when we look at any building and we're, we're looking at acquiring it, we do a full study of what the consumption is, over what hours, over what periods, how we see it. Because first you need to understand that. Once you understand that, then you can actually look at how that consumption uh, compares to neighboring similar buildings. And once you get to that phase, that's when you can actually think about how you can improve. And then one, one question I always have when we talk about, you know, smart cities or, 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 or the Internet of Things or, is, do we not need to sort of invest more power into certain sort of central bodies? You see what I mean? Because as you said, everything, if everything to, to achieve the sort of efficiencies that we're talking about, everything needs to be connected, then... You know, we, we can't as individuals have all this sort of, you know, this this devolved responsibility, right? Because then we won't achieve the, the big goals. So do we, do we need to invest more power in governments? I mean, who, who would be the right person to sort of control Internet of Things platforms in real estate? I wish governments were up to the job. The problem is that I think that governments are always playing catch up. One of my favorite recent examples is that to give you an idea, in London, Every single planning application was put online, but was put online in a PDF format, which means they're unsearchable. Yeah. So you, you've, you've taken something digital after 30-odd years, and you've made it manual online, which is completely useless. And I think that's a very good example of, unfortunately, how you know planners and regulators think. You know, if you had forward-looking regulators, and there are some examples, I think Singapore is probably a very good example, then with absolute pleasure, I think it's a great idea. The, the problem is you need to be in the right city because you risk having nonsensical rules and regulations 
if you're not if if your regulators aren't up for the job. And that would be even worse because you need to allow normally the way innovation works is somebody has a great idea and they just go for it. And if you stifle that innovation, then your city will become a laggard. So so it's it's a very delicate balance. And I think it only works in cities where where you have truly forward-looking planners. And that's pretty rare, unfortunately. I, I hope it changes. It's pretty rare. What about the real estate sort of operators themselves? Because I think I read this in something that you wrote, that the real estate sector spends only one and a half percent of its revenues on on IT. So if we compare that to sort of the you know the sector in, in which you work predominantly, which is financial services, I think financial services spends 10% of its revenues on IT. So it is is a sector that spends one just one and a half percent of its of its revenues on IT in a position where it can capitalize on on smart cities and the internet of things and sensors and, and new tech. I think the, the point that you touched upon, and that's exactly why I wrote an article, by the way, I do spend most of my time in real estate, luckily, <laughs> something I love and I'm passionate about, is is that we real estate is probably the most old school industry I know. Real estate is always very backward looking. It is felt by most people that, hey, I bought a house, I can do real estate. And it is normally also, because it's bricks and mortar, people feel that this will never change. This won't get competed out as many other industries have. And I think we are living in this very interesting moment where actually people who don't adopt to the new technologies, and it will come in every way. I think artificial intelligence will help smarter people make smarter acquisition decisions. It's already in the works and we're trying to look at it as well. It's not quite, quite there, but it's very close and it's going to happen. You know, people who, the example would be that people who manage, for example, a block of residential flats, if it's managed by a local guy who goes there and tries to talk with the tenants versus some, versus a large company that will have an app on a phone where the minute your water pipe has a leak, you just push a button and that automatically goes to the local plumbing company yeah. that you have an agreement with and they're out in 20 minutes, you, you're not going to be able to compete. So technology will go through the whole value chain of real estate from acquisition to the ownership and asset management thereof. I think it's it's finally happening. It's amazing to me that it's taken this long and I believe it's it's going to change, But but we're just at the inflection point today. Okay, and this is my last question. I can't, I can't avoid asking this question just because I think it's going to be of interest to lots of our listeners. Which is, where do you stand on the whole sort of tokenization of real estate? What what will that do? You know, is 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 you know how how far away is that as an opportunity? And then what will it do in terms of democratizing real estate as an asset class? So we've um, reviewed a few opportunities. There's definitely various efforts out there to achieve that goal. That people would, this is the holy grail that in idea, in an ideal world, I could buy, I don't know, $100 worth of an office building in New York that I like the look of. Um, my, my key concern around it is around the agency problem. Now, by agency problem, I mean is that ever since I've been doing this, the last 26 years, what I've always seen is real estate suffers. When you don't have a true owner with capital aligned and and working on it. The minute you have this slightly disaligned and you have a management team that looks after the asset and you have a disparate group of owners that can trade their shares as they wish, then the management team is going to get comfortable. They're not going to wake up every morning thinking, how am I going to push this real estate and create the best value I can for myself and my fellow investors? They're going to think, I want my long holiday. I want to do minimum I have to, and I'm good because I'm getting my management fee. And so that agency problem and conundrum nobody has really solved. And I think that until that is solved, I think that will hold back tokenization the way it is in the dream. I would say that the other big benefit of tokenization will be, which I think is probably closer, is the simple idea that today in real estate, the frictional costs are very big. So anybody buying or selling a building, in order to prove that that the deeds of that building have gone from you to the other, normally you have to go through a notary and they yeah. charge literally a percentage of the whole transaction. You know, sometimes even 0.3.5% of the transaction value. And that makes no sense. And that could easily be taken out by a sort of tokenization of the real estate that makes it clear 
through a dispersed ledger as uh, blockchain allows to prove the beneficial owner of any real estate building. So I think that is closer. It should be closer. That, of course, is a bit more regulatory driven. So that involves a regulator being a bit more forward looking because normally to date, it's been a city council that had the deeds of ownership. And so the city council would have to be forward looking enough to, uh, to allow that to happen in, in cyberspace as opposed to at city hall. But I think the other tokenization of us owning $100 of a building in Australia and another one in, in Austin, Texas, and so on, I, I'm, I'm not sure I believe that will happen really successfully in the short term because of the agency problem. Schultz, thank you so much for this highly interesting and entertaining conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Ben. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.